Have you ever tried to remember the tune of a song while a totally different song is playing in the background? <laughs> if you had a list of like impossible things, that's like one of them. Somebody says, oh, this band, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, they had this song that, yeah, their first song was back in the 80s. And it's like this, and the other music's going, and you're like, I know it. It was this. It was this song. And you're just trying to grasp for that name or really the tune of the song and it's it's just really impossible very difficult whenever i've been in that situation that other song always trips me up inevitably it always trips me up i don't think there's ever been a time where i didn't have to turn off the other song or to ask somebody to turn turn it down or i just had to move to a quieter location or if it was my only option given the circumstances, I just covered my ears, right? Like you just press them in as far as they can go and you're just trying to remember what you need to remember in that moment. Do you remember when Jesus addressed this topic? Now, some of you are scratching your head saying, Jesus was talking about trying to remember a song tune? When another song was playing? Yeah, it's in Second Opinions chapter 7. You guys don't have that in your Bible? That must be my pastor's only Bible. I'm not sure. No, of course, yeah. Jesus didn't address the idea of this frustrating musical circumstance. But what he did address, what he did talk about is getting tripped up. He did address this issue of another song playing. And he addressed this issue of of what we do when that happens. And we can't remember what we need to remember. Look with me at a passage from our Bible reading plan this past week. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 7 through 9. But even though we're going to just look at those three verses and really, really focus on two it's helpful to know something about the context here. It's an amazing chapter. There's, there, it's like one of these really dense chapters. If we were to look at Matthew 18 from that 30,000 foot perspective, you know what that is? Right? When you're flying in a plane, you're looking down and all you see is just like, all you can see are like these big like splotches of things. <laughs> you don't see a lot of detail usually. It's brown here in the desert. But then you get other places, you get those like farm fields, and then you get those really interesting circular farm fields, right? The circles, as they kind of, as we go through the Midwest, you start to see those things. But you're seeing all these big things. That's the same with Scripture. Sometimes we have to back up and say, what am I seeing in terms of the big picture here? What are these big ideas and themes that are all throughout this chapter? When you do that, the broad contours in this chapter reveal a concern about how we treat one another within the church. That's really the focus here. Within the community of disciples or followers of Christ, this chapter is focused on how we treat one another. And it especially is focused on the unhelpful, the unhealthy, and the sinful ways that we can act toward other followers of Christ. So if you read the whole chapter, it's impossible to miss how Jesus emphasizes here the importance of things like humility, grace, forgiveness, restoration with a brother or sister. 
And this is within the believing community, as I just mentioned. Now, keep that in mind as we look at this unique, at, at a really unique emphasis here in verses 7 through 9. Let's look at those verses together. Jesus declares, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. It is inevitable. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell, the Gehenna of fire. So, right away, brothers and sisters, I think it's extremely helpful to point out that the phrase here, temptations to sin, do you see that in verse 7? If you keep going in verse 7, there's two, other, uh, there's two other instances of the word temptations and then temptation. So three times that word is used in verse 7. If you, were, if you knew Greek, the original language this was written in, you would think that you looked at this and you would think you would find this particular word. It's the word parasmos in Greek. You'd say, oh, it's got to be parasmos. Parasmos means trial or temptation, test. But that's not what it says here. That's not the word here. These phrases or words translate an unusual word, but it's a word with which all of us are somewhat familiar. And you're thinking, I don't, Pastor Bryce, I don't speak Greek. How am I familiar with this word? Well, the original word here in the original Greek of the New Testament is the word skandalon. Skandalon. It's where we get our English word. Scandal, exactly, scandal. The most literal definition of this word in the Greek language is that little stick. If you put a box out in the woods like this and there's a little stick that then if something comes along, you pull it and it, it drops it like the trigger. That's what it is. That's what a scandalon is. It's a little trigger. It's a snare. This word is used 15 times throughout the New Testament and in most cases it's translated as stumbling block something you trip over right something that trips you up something that will morally and or spiritually trip you up so what exactly does jesus have in mind when he talks about getting tripped up by these stumbling blocks well in light of the broader context of chapter 18 like we said from that 30,000 foot view how we saw those themes i believe Jesus may be directing our hearts toward the stumbling blocks that every single one of us can place before others inside the church when we are, for example, consistently proud towards others. That is, maybe we put ourselves over others. We think quietly in our hearts, I'm better than that person. Therefore, I don't have time for that person. I don't need this or that. What I have is more important. What I'm doing and who I am is more important. 
right? So that could be one of those stumbling blocks that we place in treating others that way. Thus, there's a call by Jesus to humility here. Or maybe we are bitter towards others. So a stumbling block is a cold shoulder to a brother or sister that we feel has wronged us and maybe really, in fact, has wronged us. Maybe we are just indifferent toward a brother or sister, especially as they are spiritually struggling. We're just indifferent towards them. We are neglectful of where they are at. What's really fascinating here is we really, all of us know from Luke 15, that very famous chapter, Luke 15, where Jesus talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Do you remember that? Or the parable of the prodigal son is how we know it. Prodigal just means wasteful, a wasteful person. So that wasteful son, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. In that context of the lost sheep, the parable is about the Jesus as the one or as the servant of God, the, the vessel of God bringing and going after these sinners that the religious elites had pushed to the side and said, we're not interested in these people. They're a lost cause. Why are you spending any time with them? All you're doing is sullying yourself. All you're doing is corrupting yourself by hanging out with these kinds of people. What's interesting is that same parable of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one is right here in Matthew 18. But Jesus has repurposed it here for use within the church. Not outside the church, not outside the believing community. Here it's repurposed for the purpose of what do we do with a straying brother or sister? What is our heart towards that person who is struggling? Do we say, man, I've got to get a hold of that person. I've got to go after that person. I want to check, check in on that person and see how they're doing. I want to speak the truth of love to that person. Or do we say, eh, I've got other things going on. That's not my problem. I have enough on my plate as it is. You see, what Jesus is calling us to, that those kinds of stumbling blocks could be that indifference, could be that pride, could be that bitterness in situations where someone has wronged us. That helps us make sense of this entire chapter. Even if we have a clear conscience in these ways that we're talking about, we don't feel like we're doing this to other believers, which I hope that we're not. The chapter as a whole is calling us to pursue a life of building blocks not stumbling blocks so maybe that's just the takeaway for you as it is for me to say hey i don't want to be about stumbling blocks i want to be about building blocks with my brothers and sisters lord give me discernment to know how i am doing in that area give me discernment to check my own heart help me lord give me insight in that way but i think when it comes to defining stumbling blocks the bigger picture from the whole book of uh, the whole gospel of Matthew reminds us that stumbling here ultimately relates to anything that discourages another person's trust in Jesus Christ. So when he talks about the restoration here of a brother or sister, it isn't simply so that brother or sister can um, enjoy all the social benefits of being in the, in the faith family. That's a good thing. We want that. But what Jesus has in mind is any injury that could be done to that brother or sister's faith. That's what he's concerned about. That's why he says, are you going to be like the shepherd who goes after, who goes out after the straying sheep? 
In chapter 11, verse 6, take a look. Chapter 11, verse 6, Jesus declared, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, but really that word is scandalizo. So it's, blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. We know later on, of course, in the New Testament, there are Old Testament passages cited that specifically identify Jesus as the stone which was stumbled over. And we know what Paul said to the Corinthians, right? The Greeks seek wisdom, so they think the gospel is foolishness. What about the Jews? They stumble. It's a stumbling block to them, the gospel. Christ becomes that stumbling block to them. That is the bigger picture here. The, the, the question of faith in Christ. But notice this. And here's where we really, really turn to the main encouragement for this morning. Building on that foundation, notice the shift in verses 8 and 9. In our English translation, it's not obvious that a form of the word scandalon is in fact being used again in both of these verses. There's the word again. It's the verbal form of it, right? So we talk about that. That's being talked about scandalizing. Uh, what's the, if we look at verses eight, eight, eight and nine, you'll see that there. If your hand or your foot scandalizes you is really what it literally says, right? If it causes you to stumble, that is the setup here. So the focus now has turned from those who place stumbling blocks to those who are in fact stumbling. And the stumbling block over which they stumble in verses 8 and 9, that stumbling comes from their own hand or foot or eye. Hmm. What exactly does Jesus mean here in verses 8 and 9? What does he mean by this? Well, let's tackle that question by thinking together about three ideas that I hope will help us make better sense of these verses. Okay, sound good? Let's look at the first one. The first of all, stumbling. Stumbling is not ultimately about the blocks of others, but about my own desires. Stumbling is not ultimately about the blocks of others, but about my own desires. How often have we seen in the last, I don't know, 100 years, you can just go back through kind of the, the, the last 100 years of news stories, how often have we seen somebody who is a moral crusader out there on the front lines arguing for what is right and righteous, who in their private life is, is, is as corrupt as the day is long. How many times do we see people who are throwing stones on the side, but will not look in a mirror at themselves because it feels easier to throw stones and point out everyone else's problems, all the stumbling blocks out there, and never acknowledging the fact that within the human heart, there is this corrupt desire. As we've seen, God rightly warns those who place or become stumbling blocks. What did Jesus say? He said, woe to the world for these stumbling blocks. He's very clearly coming out very strongly against, he is condemning stumbling blocks. But, and those people will be held accountable, 
But in verses 8 and 9, Jesus is reminding his disciples uh, amidst all this talk about the stumbling blocks out there, people placing stumbling blocks, Jesus is reminding his disciples that their very own hands and their feet and their eyes can spiritually trip them up. Not that your hand or your foot or your eye is a bad thing. It's not. Just like Christ, who was a stumbling block, or the gospel, which is a stumbling block, is not a bad thing. It's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a perfect thing. This is what Matthew Henry wrote several centuries ago. Take a look. He said, those things which in themselves are good and may be used as instruments of good, even those through the corruptions of our hearts, prove snares to us. Prove to be snares to us. Incline us to sin and hinder us in duty. And what is our duty as disciples? It is to follow Jesus in faith. It is to follow Jesus in faith. That is the song that we need to remember, brothers and sisters. That is the song of our salvation That is the song God is calling you to sing every single day. But we often struggle to remember that song, don't we? We struggle with it. Why? Because that other song is playing. That other song is playing. As we're trying to remember. And what's happened? What's happening? We're getting tripped up. As we're trying to remember it, we're, we can't place the, you know, that we're just getting boggled in our minds by it. We can't sort it out. Follower of Jesus, yes, that quote unquote other song is always playing out there in the world. It's always playing. But as the NIV, and the NIV renders verse 7 this way, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Like I said, Jesus is clear in his denunciation of the world and its stumbling blocks. We should be just as clear. But that quote unquote other song is also inside of me. It's inside of you. And, and it wants to turn up that volume. It wants to turn up that volume on you, that sinful nature inside of you. We have to acknowledge that fact. We can't be oblivious to that fact. We can't try to deny that fact, brothers and sisters. Because if we do, we miss what Jesus is teaching us. What does He want us to do in light of this fact? In light of the reality of the other song? Well, number two, second, faithfully following Christ as Lord means radically rejecting what trips me up. Radically rejecting what trips me up. Jesus describes that radical rejection by using some imagery here that's very hard to forget. It's memorable, isn't it? It really it really does what he wants it to. It really kind of gives us that gut punch when it uses this imagery. He says verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, causes you to stumble, literally, cut it off and throw it away. So you severing your own limb, 
you then taking that severed limb and throwing it out, discarding of it, a severed hand, a severed foot, a popped out, plucked out eyeball, and throwing it away? That's a pretty gruesome picture, isn't it? (laughs) That's a very gruesome picture. It's a painful picture. It's a repulsive idea. But that's exactly why Jesus uses the language He does. He didn't, he didn't stumble, just stumble into this or accidentally kind of describe it this way. He very intentionally described it this way. He wants you to understand the truth about the radical surgery that is absolutely necessary in order to save your life. He's not going to candy coat it. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He loves you too much not to be as clear and direct as He possibly can with you about your life and what will save your life. Is this a new idea for Jesus? No, not at all. This is a constant theme. He just uses different language to talk about this theme. Not only did He use this same limb-severing imagery in chapter 5, Verses 27 through 30, when he was, when he was talking there about battling with lust. But throughout the, this gospel of Matthew, he also describes this same radical rejection using several other images. Here's one example. Take a look. Chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. This is like packed with these. Whoever loves father or, or mother more than me, says Jesus, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, this gospel doesn't expand on this, but we know from the other gospels that Jesus even uses this image of hating. Right? He who does not hate father or mother. He's not talking about like malicious, evil thoughts towards them. He's talking about their, their, their second place in light of His love is as it were almost hate, right? It's just Christ is first in one's life. And so what is he saying here? He's talking about radical rejection. Not radical rejection of your family like, I'm never talking to you again, click. No, but if that family and those family commitments or the way that you idolize family is a stumbling block to you, you have to cut it off. Again, that may not mean that you somehow don't talk to your family, but you place the necessary boundaries, right? You apply a new kind of wisdom to your life with, in your interactions with those family members. That's, that's one idea. Look at verse 38, Matthew 10 on the screen. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. A radical rejection of comfort. A radical rejection of dignity and respect. You take up the cross, you take up, you take up instrument of shame, humiliation, and ultimately, as we see in the next verse, death. Whoever finds his life, says Jesus, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Was Jesus, Jesus calling them to literally take up a wooden cross? Was he standing outside the carpenter shop in Nazareth, handing out crosses to people that he had worked all weekend on and said, come take up a cross, right? Come take up a cross and bear it. No, 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 no. 
Right? No, he's not talking about that. Is he calling them to literally sacrifice their lives? In some cases, these people did. Maybe some of these people did sacrifice their lives. Maybe, in fact, some of these people were crucified like their Lord. But Jesus is speaking to everyone here, not just some. What is he doing? He's using imagery here to describe the radical rejection of, the liberating loss of, a faith-filled forsaking of sin and self. The severing of our limbs is just one more image to add to that gallery. Not literal, like the cross or having yourself killed for Christ. Not literal, but still radical. Absolutely radical. Christ is clearly asking us here, those who are disciples of Jesus in this room, those who are listening online, who are followers of Christ, Christ is clearly asking us here, to what lengths will you go to follow me faithfully? What are you willing to give up in order to steer clear of that which will trip you up? Sadly, we're often looking for or trying to figure out some kind of compromise. That's just us. That's just how we are. We're looking for some kind of compromise. Some way to keep our fleshly comforts and worldly ambitions. Some way to keep both of our hands and both of our feet and both of our eyes while at the same time reassuring ourselves that we are faithful followers of Christ. That we are walking upright after Jesus. But in reality, we are spiritually stumbling. If you are on that path of compromise, if you are trying to find some happy medium, you are already stumbling. Now, Jesus knows this. He's such a good master. He's such a kind king. He's such a gracious savior, isn't he? So compassionate. He knows this. He knows we can struggle in precisely this way. If he didn't, why would he even be saying this to his disciples? He already knows this. That's why he's saying what he's saying here in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 18. That's why he calls us to take drastic spiritual action to cut out and distance ourselves from such stumbling blocks. And so I ask you, brother, sister, what trips you up? What trips you up? Be honest with yourself. What impedes your forward momentum in following after Christ? Many of us know the answer to that question. I don't need to dig down and give you 15 bajillion examples of that. Because I trust that the Holy Spirit is already working on you. And you may know, you know it, but sometimes you don't want to face it, right? You just kind of bury that back down. But God in His love is stirring you this morning. He wants you to face it. Our Lord is calling you, calling us to face these things and to do so from God's perspective. What is that perspective? Glad you asked. Look at point number three. Point number three. Loss and gain must be understood through the lens of eternity. 
Loss and gain must be understood through the lens of eternity. In both verse 8 and verse 9, Jesus describes two eternal destinies. Do you see that? The first is to enter life. Sounds good. I want to enter life. Yeah, I want that. I want to enter life. And the second is to be thrown into the eternal fire. No thank you. Mm -mm. That does not sound good at all. Like the limb-severing language in these same verses, both of these destinies are meant to get our attention. They're serious, aren't they? They, they, are, they are meant to grab us. They are meant to communicate the incomparable seriousness of what Jesus is talking about here. So please understand what Jesus is saying. Please understand what He's communicating to us here. If we accept this idea that the loss of certain fleshly comforts and worldly ambitions is like the loss of a limb, doesn't that then lead us to having to live an impaired life? A limited life? Jesus says, yes, that's exactly right. Yes. You got it, he says. Good job. You got it. I said impaired life. Look at the words Jesus uses here. Crippled. Lame. And right now I'm saying these words to you and you're already wincing. Crippled. Lame. Impaired. Limited. But we say to Jesus, no, I don't want to live an impaired life. I want my best life now. And this is where Jesus points us to eternity. He asks us this question. Isn't it far, far better to struggle through this fleeting and fading world with one eye and one hand or one foot if it means fullness, wholeness of life forever in the presence of God? Isn't that better? Moreover, the alternative is absolutely horrifying. Trading today's temporary fleshly comforts for an eternity of suffering for my sins. You see, Jesus wants eternity to bring everything into perspective for us. And when that perspective leads to faith, you know what happens? There's actually joy in the impaired life. There's actually joy and gladness. There's wholeness of heart in the limited life. The crippled life. The lame life. There's joy in it. Because what is gained is far, far greater than what is lost. Take a look on the screen. Jesus taught earlier, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. 
He goes and he chops off his hand and plucks out his eye and chops off his foot. He puts new boundaries in his relationships. He sacrifices and walks away from these things. He reorders his priorities. He doesn't enjoy. He sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, is this new for Jesus? No, no, this is a common theme. We see it here again. The same idea of radical rejection. Chapter 13, verse 44. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you say. If this is how Jesus wants me to approach temptation in my life, if this is how He wants me to approach these stumbling blocks that are always tripping me up, does it mean that I should always be motivated as a believer by pursuing heaven and avoiding hell? That sounds like a mindset based on me and my works. Yes, we need to be crystal clear about this, don't we? We need to be crystal clear about this gospel passage in light of the entire gospel of grace. How do we make sense of it? How do we understand it? Well, we can say absolutely that my gain is not based on my loss. This isn't about what I have to offer, right? It's about what Jesus Christ offered once for all. It's based on the radical rejection that He suffered. It's not about the loss of my life. It's about the loss of His life. Not the figurative severing of my hands or feet, but the literal piercing of His with Roman spikes. You see, the language here that Jesus is giving to His disciples not only takes into account that not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Within the church, within the kingdom, there are wheat and tares. Visible church, invisible church. We know that's true. I hope everybody in this room is genuinely saved. But I know based on Scripture and I think just experience, that's probably not true. You see, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 7, verse 21 But also, this is based on the fact that saving repentance and saving faith in Christ, you finding that treasure in the field and giving up all to go after it, the walking away of those relationships that are stumbling blocks to you that would keep you from Christ and going after Christ in faith through the forgiveness of the cross, that that saving repentance and saving faith in Christ, they establish a pattern in your life of ongoing repentance and ongoing faith. And you continue to work that out in your life, right? You continue to work that out. That means this. It means a genuinely grace-transformed, grace-motivated, spirit-filled disciple will ultimately obey this word from Jesus about radical rejection. The Spirit of God pricks your heart and you say, this language is repulsive to me, but somehow... I know it's exactly what I need. I see it as, it, it's gruesome, but now the Spirit's giving me eyes to see this radical surgery will save me. Right? Not save me because I'm doing it, but save me from a path where I prove myself not to be even a, a follower of Christ. I prove it empty. 
Jesus absolutely acknowledges the struggle here. Will a disciple, a genuine disciple, truly obey this word? Yes, but Jesus is acknowledging the struggle here. It's not easy. We continue to struggle with it. We will till the day we die in one way or another. But He also, Christ also wants everyone who confesses His name, who names His name, to be clear about what the consistent rejection of radical rejection reveals about one's heart and destiny. That's why He says the things that He says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Lord, didn't we cast out demons in Your name? Didn't we do miracles in Your name? I never knew You, He says. Jesus. Bro, you've got to be more seeker sensitive than this. Like, what are you doing? You're driving people away by talking like this. No, He's not. He's loving them with the truth. As the great physician, He's loving them with the truth, saying, man, I want you to be well, but you need radical surgery. And when we have that radical surgery, guess what? It keeps going. And the, and the so-called disciple who hears this radical rejection and just ignores it and neglects it and continues stumbling down the path trying to tell themselves that everything is okay because they've accepted a caricature of discipleship. They've accepted a caricature of the Christian life. And they say, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. They are in for a rude awakening before the throne of God. That doesn't give me any joy in saying that. It shouldn't give any of us joy in saying that. It should motivate our hearts in love to say, I want you to know the truth. You keep wanting to walk through this life with both hands and both eyes and both feet. But brother, sister, Christ is calling you to cut that off. It's hurting you. It's hindering you. You're not following after Him. And when you hear the call of discipleship in one way or another, right? And you begin to make excuses. Well, yeah, that sounds really amazing to live like that. But I couldn't do that because I have this, 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 and this in my life. Because I'm this kind of person. Because I'm this. And yet, if we follow those excuses back, guess what? Stumbling blocks. And Jesus says... Brothers and sisters, even this morning, our King is calling us to remember and to sing the song of our salvation. But maybe this morning, you also hear Him calling you in light of that other song out there or within you or the the convergence of the two. He's also calling you this morning to radical rejection in light of His amazing grace. You hear the love in His voice when He says this. I hope you do. Ask Him then. Ask Him, even now, for clear eyes and a faith-filled heart to cut off and throw away what is tripping you up. Maybe, like we've said, that means new boundaries in a relationship, a particular relationship in your life. Maybe it means the reordering of your priorities and you've been resistant to do so. Maybe this means the letting go of that quote-unquote security blanket. 
Maybe it means the sacrifice of a coveted possession. Maybe it means the sacrifice of a coveted promotion. Maybe it means the sacrifice of a coveted position that you already hold. Reputation, whatever it might be. Something that has become so precious to you that the idea of losing it would be like losing a limb. He turns our eyes to eternity and says, can you live as a crippled, as one lame, if I am with you? And my promises are true about what you will receive. Whatever this means for you in your life as the Spirit of God is stirring you even now, or maybe you're hearing the gospel with new ears and fresh clarity like you've never heard it before, and you say, I need to follow Christ. I need to turn. I need to trust Him for what He can do. I need to... I need to cut off these things out of my life that have been just impeding me and and repent and turn away from those things. It ultimately is described by Jesus as the denying of oneself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or herself. Let them take up the cross and then follow me. Whatever this means for you, friend, brother, sister, the one who calls you to this radical surgery is marvelously the one who has and who will bring you the ultimate healing that you are ultimately seeking in all that you're doing. He can do that. Let's trust Him for that. Amen? Amen. Let's trust Him for that. Let's ask Him for the courage of a faith-filled heart by His grace to be able to say, I cut it off and I throw it away. I toss it to the side, Lord. Would you pray with me? Let's go to Him even now. Take a moment, you would, if you would, take a moment in quietness and talk with God about your own heart. Face, even if you've been trying to run from it, the thing that God is telling you about what needs to be removed.